How can we bridge the gap between knowledge and policy? Hi, this is Lucy, and you're listening to Bridging Knowledge and Policy, a podcast from the Institute for Governance Reform. The Institute for Governance Reform is a research and advocacy think tank based in Freetown, Sierra Leone. In this episode, we speak with Kefala Kalon, the bank governor of Sierra Leone, about the current state of inflation and its impact on Sierra Leone's economy. But what can one say are the causes of the unstable rate of inflation in the country and what can be done about it? Thank you so much for being here today. And today we're going to talk about inflation in Sierra Leone. So what would you say is the current state of inflation? Inflation is very high. We don't measure it. Statistics here really measures it. It's about 24%. So how would you want to analyze the situation in Sierra Leone, the present situation? Well, firstly, we have to understand that prior to COVID, when I took over as governor, inflation was around 18%. And we focused on bringing inflation down because we know that once you bring inflation down, you can also stabilize the exchange rate. There is a doctrine called the Purchasing Power Parity Doctrine, which just says that the rate at which your currency depreciates is equal to the difference between your inflation rate and the inflation rate of your trading partners. So we figure that if we can put a break on inflation in this country, then we'll be able to stabilize the exchange rate, which we did from mid-2019 almost to mid-2020. If you ask anybody here, they will tell you it was 10,000 leons to the dollar and this, that. That was why I want to stabilize. I, I don't care about the number. I just want a stable. Because once you have a stable, business people can plan ahead. And as the inflation rate, we even got to a single digits and this, that. And I was hoping that by the end of the year, we'll be about 5%. Then COVID came. COVID came domestically. We closed the country. There were inter-district lockdowns and this, that, creating an artificial supply constraint, which raised prices. But that was not too difficult. The international response to COVID, China having this zero tolerance, and the world had made China its factory. So when they closed down, Supply essentially stopped coming out, prices went up. What people need to understand, and I've said this when I've gone around the country, is that a small country has no control over the price it pays. Analogy I give them is, you go now to any store that sells rice. Suppose they tell you that a bag of rice is 400,000 euros. And you tell the merchant that you want to pay 399,000 leons. Will they sell it to you? Of course not. No way. On the other hand, if he had 5,050 kilogram bags of rice in stock, and you go and say, I want to pay the 400,000, will they sell it to you? Of course, they will sell you everything. The reason the businessman will not sell you going to buy one bag Anything below that price is because you can stop eating rice. It will have very little impact on the full demand for rice. And therefore, he can sell at that price. Now, if you were a big, suppose you bought 50% of the stock of rice in this country. You can then go to that dealer, that businessman, and they will give you a discount. Because if you stop buying, their stock will go up. 
It's the same thing with countries. When you are a small country, your demand for any commodity is so small relative to the world demand that you, we can stop eating rice for a whole year. It will have no impact on the price of rice. We have to pay the world price. So when supply constraints, raised freight charges, for example, a container thing that used to, uh, they used to pay 3,000, I think from China to here, now they pay close to 20, 30,000 for that same container. When you add all of those costs, it raises prices here. And we really have no control over that. Economists talk about two types of inflation. We have core inflation, which is inflation due to factors internal. Then you have this other inflation, inflation due to energy, food, things whose prices are volatile. And particularly for a small country, you cannot control those. A big part of our current inflation is driven by non-core inflation. That does not mean that we do not do the things that we need to do, the tools available to us to try to manage the one that we can manage. But as of this point, until the world economy opens up again, really, now the thing was compounded by Russia and Ukraine. That's the key conundrum. And one of the policy problems, I might add, for any central banker is stagflation, where the economy is stagnant and prices are rising. The tool we have to fight inflation worsens the stagflation because we have to raise interest rates, cause the cost of uh, borrowing and doing this to go up so that prices will not go up. But when you do that, firms have very little to borrow Consumers who were in this country, that doesn't happen, but in the West, where people use credit for consumption, they will also reduce their consumption as a result of it. The economy drags back. So you are curing inflation by increasing unemployment. The tools that you have to reduce unemployment raises inflation in the short run. So that is the, pro the dilemma we have. In Sierra Leone, however, a country that has two generations of people who know nothing but trouble. The child soldiers are now their children. We will look for every opportunity to cause chaos. The policymaker, the monetary authority cannot be one-sided. So for example, by all means, I'm going to raise interest rates to 50% bring inflation down. You do that, you may not have a country tomorrow. So it's a delicate balancing act. Okay, but what exactly can you say is it that a bank uses to measure the country's rates like customer price index? We don't uh, get that information. Statistics Sierra Leone measures the consumer price index. Okay. They report it to us and to the rest of the country. We hear it just at the same time as all of you hear it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, our own economic policy has been the, we are indexing I wouldn't even call it an inflation indexing policy. We take inflation very seriously, but I'm always also looking at the rare side of the economy. Mm. For example, when COVID came and we saw people fighting for toilet tissue, say in America, we saw that on TV. The central banker in the United States would not worry about, if I continue the stance of my policy, are we going to have riots and the government overthrown and we all go back to the bush? 
they don't think about that because the system is stable. For me, as governor of a central bank in a country that has these two generations of Sierra Leoneans who feel that the greatest benefit you can get is to cause chaos, I had to say, okay, let's put some reserves out. Initially, $50 million to bring in food into this country, medicine and this, that, so that people do not go out on the street and create chaos. My counterparts elsewhere would not think about that because their systems are different. The policies that we use, we have a hybrid policy. My job is to make sure that inflation is controlled. But if I go too keenly on my job and increase unemployment and hardship in the country, I may not have a country. Okay, talking about those policies, what are the key inflation drivers and how are they impact the economy? Because we still see people making a fuss over food and fuel costs. The key inflation drivers, food and fuel, the non-core items that are volatile, that are out of our control. Let me tell you, with the war in in Ukraine, I, I was at a conference recently where somebody said, The war in Ukraine is hurting Africans more than the Ukrainians themselves. Because those people who used to even help us are now all turned toward Ukraine. When you have a fixed set of resources to help and you divert most of it to one area, the impact is felt elsewhere. Commodity prices have increased, food on the world market. Energy prices have increased. And even when you have the money, you have these sanctions. I am sure there are people who try to beat these sanctions to bring fuel and this, that. But they will not look at us. If you have one boatload, you come to Sierra Leone with just one, a few met- thousand metric tons. The longer you stay here, you will get discovered. So unlike countries like Nigeria, big countries that can attract these vessels, we only get the remnants when they have sold to those countries. Whatever is left, our oil marketers contact the ships. And whereas in the past, they bring you the, the fuel and this, that, and you pay in 30 days, now they actually want the dollar available. You give it to them, they give you the fuel. So we are in a bad situation, in a bad situation that is not caused by us. One guy decides to invade another country, but we now feel the brunt. Okay, so but what would you want to say about Sierra economy as compared to other neighboring countries? We are doing relatively well. Really? Yeah. Look, one of the perceptions that people have of this country is that our currency is so weak, our economy is so bad just because we have so many zeros on our exchange rate. And now we have well, limited well, zeros. Please. We don't trade directly, for example, with Nigeria in terms of currencies. So we look at Leon's per dollar and Naira per dollar. If you divide those two, you will get Leon's per Naira. And we do that for other African countries also. When we look at that in the time series, we seem to see that the Leon is outperforming most currencies in Sub-Saharan Africa, meaning that we depreciate at a lower rate than the rate of depreciation in the other countries. That's one thing that people don't know. There was a time, I think it was in 2019, we had heard about Nigeria producing so much rice. 
So I contacted the governor and said, why don't we have a swap arrangement where you give us some Naira, we give you some leons, and we buy rice from you people. And then we settle at the end of the year. Everything went well. The president here approved, the president there approved. We went to the ministerial level meetings and this, that. And somebody asked, what is the price of rice in Nigeria right now? The price they showed us was higher than the price that we were paying for imported rice. Look, I don't say this to minimize anything, but when the last time I checked, the price of rice in Nigeria was like 27,000 Naira. When you converted it into leons, it was like 75,000 leons per 50 kilogram bag. Here, says 400,000. 750,000 leons, I'm sorry, as opposed to 400,000. You go to Ghana, the price of rice, 25 kilogram bag of rice, is close to $50. For a long time, because rice is relatively cheaper here, if you have traveled to the provinces at night, you see these huge trucks coming from Guinea taking food, rice from here to Guinea. Yes, things are bad everywhere. But relatively, the power of the guy upstairs, the almighty God, we have been able to fare a lot better. Okay, so are there tools that the central bank hopes to address the inflation with? We, we always have tools. Uh, the most important tool we, we use is our monetary policy rate. And in the past two or three monetary policy committee meetings, we have raised those rates. That is the rate at which we lend to the commercial banks. We call that a contractional monetary policy. You reduce credit in the system and that should put a break on prices. But as I have said, even those instruments are very limited. That's one, but two, much of the inflation that is now feeding core inflation in this country is food price inflation, energy price inflation. If we were to take those two away, we might say that our inflation rate is relatively okay. But since COVID and now the war, those two things have been shooting up. The solution to that is not so much short-term macroeconomic policy by the central bank. It is those structural policies that we talked about earlier. We increase production. We change this country from a consumption economy to a production economy. Is there any hope for price control? Price control never works. You, I, I'm sure you've heard about two line. Look, if I buy my rice at 350000 and you tell me that I should sell it at 200000 should I sell it? I will hoard it. When I hoard it, what happens is that, as it happened in the 1980s, now I will only sell it to people I trust and people who have big money to come and buy my goods. So when we have price control in this country, you have long lines because people hoard it. The people that the price control policy seems to want to help, the poor, generally suffer more because now they don't even have access. There were newspaper reports at that time where a woman went to stand in line for a few cups of rice, had a baby strapped on her back. They were there for so long, the baby got dehydrated and died just to buy a few cups of rice. As an economist, I would not advocate price control. The other insidious aspect of this price control urban people insist on is that if we control the price of rice, why would I in the village want to grow rice? 
why don't I just come to the city and buy the lower price rice? So we affect both demand and supply. Does the central bank control the amount of money in the economy in the country? Yeah. To what extent? To a very large extent, because we put the money in there. And when we don't want a lot of money in the system, we can change the monetary policy rate that I talked to you about. We can increase the interest rate we charge government when they come to borrow from us. We have tools to control the money supply, yes. So we see that Sierra doesn't really produce oil, and this has been an issue. But can anything be done to lessen the impact on of foreign oil prices on the economy? <laughs> we just talked about it. Sierra Leone is a small country. Yeah. Because Sierra Leone is a small country, it takes the price of oil as determined by the world market. Now, the government and even also the central bank have tried very hard to cushion the impact of this hike in oil prices on the average consumer. Firstly, I have gone to our development partners. Because we don't produce, much of the foreign exchange we get is given to us. And when it's given to us, it comes with conditions. You cannot use it for this. You can only use it for that. So when, for example, we have this spike in oil prices, the last one, just to summarize, I went to the IMF and I said, look, people are burning tires on the street because there is no diesel. I need to put out a special credit, a special fund for the importation of fuel so that we can get fuel in this country. We agreed initially, well, we didn't agree on the number, but we eventually agreed on some number for us to do that. But that is very limited. We can have a much greater impact as a country on food inflation by putting in policies that, for example, will make my village habitable for young people to stay there and work and grow rice, grow coffee, grow cacao, and so forth. But in a democratic society, and this is one of the disadvantages of democracy, look, economists come from the viewpoint that everybody works on the basis of self-interest. The self-interest of the politician is to gain power and retain it. The self-interest of business people is to make profit. The self-interest of households is to maximize utility, get the most out of everything. One thing also you know If households want to maximize, and these are the voters, they will prefer somebody that will give them something for free. So they like increased government services, increased government subsidies, and this, that, but they don't want to pay taxes. So in a democracy, a politician wanting to gain power or retain power will then try to lean towards satisfying the voter. By doing that, you have a situation in the decision-making scheme that tends to fiscal deficits and therefore inflation. And it's not just here, even in the United States, United Kingdom. When you have that mix, the only way you are able to checkmate that thing is an autonomous central bank that says, okay, Mr. Finance Minister, you want to spend this, you want to spend that, but you don't have this money, and we are not going to give you a loan. Or if I'm going to give you a loan, you are going to pay a higher interest rate. So that is the key problem with democracies. People talk about, uh, say, Rwanda 
Rwanda has been able to do quite a bit of, because it's an autocracy. One man makes the decision and nobody goes out on the street to protest. We don't have that here. So we perfect what we have. I listened to a, a director today in, 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 on the radio, and the one thing that I liked that he said was, regardless of all the things that we put on paper, you need statesmen and women to make the country run. You know, whatever you bring, there is no economic policy that you bring that's not going to create winners and losers. But the political leadership of all stripes should be able to look and say, if we do this for the good of the country, we may even have to take some political flack now, but it will be good for the country. And we don't seem to have that. And when he was talking today, I just told him, I said, maybe what I should do is buy as many copies of John Kennedy's Profiles and Courage and give it as a Christmas gift to each MP, where he profiles politicians who took very difficult decisions in the national interest, knowing that once I make this vote, I'm never going to be elected in the Senate again. But they did it because they wanted to make sure that the country progresses. And so if we don't have statesmen and women, we only have people who look at things from their narrow partisan points of view. What we have is the chaos we have now. And can we say we're hopeful? I'm always hopeful. This economy, the way things are going and the way the economy, can we really sincerely say we're hopeful? If we had not had COVID, the trend that we were seeing with uh, inflation continued to trend, expected to trend all the way to 5%. We were expecting 5% GDP growth, 7% the next year, and so forth and so on. By now, we would have been saying we see a visible difference in people's lives in this country. But mind you, remember I told you I did a study where two-thirds of economic growth goes to the owners of capital. So we could actually have the economy growing poverty increasing, but at least the economy would have grown. Prices would be relatively lower. If we had uh, been able to bring the prices down to 5%, as we hoped, and as the data told us we could do without COVID, this place would have been a bit better than we have it now. So COVID, well, hopefully, would come to an end eventually. I'm an optimist. <laughs> Okay, what will be your final words? My final word is simply this. We are in a world that has changed so much that even things that we used to believe in are changing. When I talk to our international partners, the fellow economists, I tend to tell them that the economists that I was four years ago when I was a professor will be ashamed of the economists that I am now. Because the economists that I was did not worry about whether tires were burning on the streets. I just go and assume what we call ceteris paribus, all other things being equal. Then come up with my policy prescriptions. The economist that I am now looks at what happens to the average person and tries to do what we can within the limits of our resources to try to help make things a little better. What I will say to the people of this country is that, yes, things are tough, but you have some well-meaning people who are working day and night to try to do something to soften it a little bit. And we will not relent. 
we are not going to say because the war is there, we are not going to be creative. We have been quite creative by providing the facilities to bring in essential commodities, providing facilities to uh, provide uh, fuel in this country. The central bank is still committed to, we provided a facility to provide low interest, I think 5% interest loans to agro dealers to be able to import uh, agricultural inputs, fertilizers, seeds, pesticides, and this, that to grow agriculture. Uh, the Bank of Australia is committed to doing those kinds of things in spite of the serious problems we are encountering. We will continue to do those things to try to ameliorate some of the problems. But the people of this country have to also understand that we have to work. We have to produce. If we don't do that, no central bank is going to bring inflation down. No governor will do it. We as a country have to agree to work hard, produce more than we consume. When we produce more than we consume, those savings go to promote economic growth. But now we have negative national savings. This is why we have to keep going to borrow or beg in order for us to have the resources to do what we need to do. Well, thank you very much, Professor Callum, for having us here today. Until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bridging Knowledge and Policy from the Institute for Governance Reform. For more information on IGL's research and advocacy, visit our website or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.